Oh, thank you, worship team. They're good, aren't they? Yeah, I'll tell you. We're, yes, yes, we're allowed to do that, and let's go with it. If we're going to go there, let's do that. That's good. We're so grateful to you guys. Thank you, Jan and company, for leading us. We're really blessed to have the people we have. Um, okay, Hatfields versus McCoys. All right. North versus uh, South. All right. Um, Shaq versus Kobe. I don't know if that's quite as interesting as that. Uh, parent versus child ready to eat the last piece of broccoli uh, on the plate and kind of fighting that. Is it interesting that human beings have a long history of not getting along? Isn't that true? You just name a battle, name a war, name a region of the country, name a generation, and you will find uh, national, international conflict as well as local and personal conflict. That human beings, we are really good at not getting along. And we're really good at continuing not to get along, continuing to fight long after the battle first started, and holding grudges for a long time. So I decided that it would be fun for me to make a list of all the things that in this room this room, in, in this hearing now, and even if you're listening later online, that, that you could, as you listen or as you hear now, that we can all say, we agree on this. So I decided I would come up with a list of all the things that we could say, yep, we agree. We're 100% behind this. So on to the next list, all right? So I sat down and I thought, this is actually a lot harder than I thought. But I did come up with some things, and I had to write them down to just make sure that I wouldn't miss them. So here we go. So I'd like you to play a game with me if you can this morning. I want your, your hands raised to participate. This will be fun. We want to encourage hand raising in church anyway, so this is a nice way to get involved with that, all right? So first of all, if you agree with these statements, you know, raise your hand. Number one, you can hear me. That was easy. All right, good. At some point in your life, you have or had had a mom. Look at how agreeable we are. You are looking forward to lunch. <laughs> you would rather eat a whoopie pie than a pile of dirt. All right, some of you didn't raise your hand. I don't know what's up with that. You are cheering for the Eagles this afternoon. Winter is your favorite season. <laughs> Three of you. <laughs> you like Christmas. Uh, not even everybody there. The church is always the right temperature. <laughs> Nobody agrees on that, except Carl, who sets the thermostats. All right. Good stuff. Okay, now... <laughs> Thank you for playing along. That was easy, right? Now, let's, let's not raise hands on these, all right? Let's not raise hands. Now, you agree. Um, Republican Party is best. Democratic Party is best. Independent Tea Party is best, all right? Uh, music, I like it traditional. I like it contemporary. I like jazz, R&B, rock. Did I say country? I think that's a style. Not... <laughs> not so sure. It's Christmas season, so you certainly would agree that you like everybody in your family. Right? Your neighbors, you get along with your neighbors. Well, everybody would agree to that. Right? We're not raising hands, don't nudge anybody or look any funny any, at anybody. Just People at work, get along well with everybody at work. 
You love your boss. Your boss loves you. <laughs> no nudging again, no nudging. People at church, right? we get along with everybody at church. Love everybody sitting around us. No problems there. Isn't it amazing that when we start to think about the ways in which we're made so differently, uh, it doesn't take long for us to diverge quickly uh, as people because we've come from so many backgrounds and so many different um, places. Our personalities are just different, aren't they? Uh, there's no question about that. And our personalities rub each other the wrong way sometimes. And our, our backgrounds, the way we were raised, you know, fundamentally different. Um, our outlook on faith is fundamentally different. Where we were raised in the world, let alone in the region of our country or, or internationally, makes us look at the world differently. And it doesn't take long to come up with ways in which we begin to diverge and separate from one another and, and are different. And so as we talk about this whole concept of arriving this morning in part six of our eight-part series, talking about shalom or how do we find peace and fullness, we have to talk about the elephant in the room, and that is if we're going to have a conversation about arriving in shalom and trying to aim for fullness, we have got to talk about the issue of what does shalom or peace or fullness actually look like together with one another? In, in a world where politically we're very different, all right, with our preferences we're very different, with our food tastes we're very different, with our personalities we're different, with our backgrounds we're different, with the ways that we connect to God we're different. And how in the world, how in the world are we supposed to figure out how to get along? And what does shalom actually look like for us as, as Christians? All right, I mean, that, that's part of the, the question. And, and so as we talk about that, I wanted to try to try to get um, some things that we actually can agree on, on how we disagree. All right, you'd be surprised how difficult it is actually to come up with a list of things that we know we all agree on. But I, I think we can agree. I think we can agree on how we disagree. At least, let's start there. So I wanted to come up with kind of a list of things that we know about um, disagreements to start the conversation this way. Because this conversation is important to have if we're going to talk about what shalom or peace or fullness looks like. Not just peace with God, and, and not just peace within myself with God, but rather peace with actually with one another, with, with you and with me. That we are at peace with one another, even though we're different and even though there's things that we disagree on, what does it look like and what is God's ideal or idea for how we should pursue peace with one another? And at the Christmas season, is there a better time really to talk about that than, than now? So here's some things that I think we know, because this is a very big topic to try to talk about in the time that we have. So here we go. Number one, um, we already know this, but not all disagreements are created equal, right? Not all disagreements are created equal. So you have vanilla, you have chocolate, all right? you have Eagles, Steelers, you have John Deere or Case, or what else have we got in there, okay, international, whatever, right? You have people who have different perspectives, and, and, and those are not that big a deal, but not all disagreements are created equal, and we're okay with that. We understand that there's some that are bigger and some that are smaller, but here's what we also know. So let's take that really broad concept I think we can all agree on and push it out a little bit further. What does that mean? The greater the disagreement, the greater the space that it creates between us. I, I think we can agree to that, too. So in other words, if you like um, this team and I like that team, it creates a little bit of space between us, but it's really minuscule, and it's hardly even worth talking about. It's just more fun kind of jabbing at each other. But if you have a disagreement with me on ethics and morality, that can create a much broader 
gap, a much bigger space between us. And so the greater the difference, the greater the disagreement, the greater the space that's created between you and me relationally. And in turn, the lesser quality of the disagreement, the lesser the space created between us relationally. And so there's space that comes, and the greater the disagreement, the greater the space. And the lesser the disagreement, the lesser the space. It works with your children this way, right? When you tell your kid... You need to be home at, here's the curfew, it's whatever, 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock or midnight, and the kid doesn't really want to, it creates a little bit of space, but if you decide to say, you know what, all right, I don't even like who you're dating, in fact, you can't date that person anymore. (laughs) That's a bigger disagreement and will create more space between you and your child. So the bigger the disagreement, the bigger the space, the smaller disagreement, the smaller space. Okay? Now... We also know this, that we have figured out that we can get along with people even when there is space between us. That we are, as a people, we're okay with this. We have to live within this tension because we don't know how else to operate. That we know there's always going to be space between us. There's always going to be some people who like music that way and some who want it Carl, who want it hotter in here, right? And some who want it colder in here. And we just live with those people. There's some people who are louder and some who are quieter and there's some who are, you know, thinking this way about how they spend their money and some are thinking this way and some raise their kids that way and some raise them this way and we're okay with that and we just generally know that we can figure out there's certain things that we can figure out that we can get along with people even when there's space between us all right so this is we can kind of all agree but there's also this time that comes where there's a certain distance in relationships where it becomes too much there's certain times where there's a distance created in a relationship where it becomes too much to continue that relationship like it used to be this is why we have the term ex, whatever, ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-husband, ex-wife, ex-fiance, ex-whatever, ex-employee, all right, you know, ex-neighbor, whatever, that, that there was a relationship that was close, and then something happened there, and it now, the distance became too great, and we can no longer continue like we used to continue, ex-whatever, ex-church member, right, ex, you know, leader, ex, whatever, that there's always this thing that exists. Sometimes the disagreement pushes us to the point where even though we can live with tension, there comes a point where the tension becomes too much and the, the space becomes too much where we just have to move on. And we just know that category exists. Now we also know this, and this happens around Christmas time and other times too, but that this is strange but true, that big events tend to lessen the space. Big events tend to lessen the space. So, so in other words, um, let's take a fun one at first. If you are, let's say, a Steelers fan who in general doesn't really care about the Eagles too much or can be ambivalent toward that, you all of a sudden become an Eagles fan when the Eagles are playing the Ravens. So when the, when the Eagles play a team that is your team's nemesis or whatever, your rival, you will all of a sudden cheer for somebody else because there's something bigger at stake. It happens in the, the case of um, a sudden or tragic death. I mean, you've seen this... Um, all the time. In fact, it doesn't even have to be sudden. It can just be a a death in the family. That a big event like a death in the family, all of a sudden, people in your family who used to ignore each other or kind of look sideways at each other or not really talk, all of a sudden, at a funeral, they're coming together. And you see that uncle hugging that cousin that never used to talk for 10 years, but now they're supporting each other in tears over something that's bigger than their disagreement was, whatever the disagreement was. That big events tend to bring our focus away from the little stuff and onto the bigger stuff, and it can lessen the space, albeit artificially sometimes, but it can lessen the space and the distance relationally between me and you, and just the way that that works. We also know this. It doesn't seem realistic to get along with everyone. 
it doesn't seem realistic to get along with everyone. That if we're going to talk about peace and fullness and completeness, for me to lay out to you, if you're a thinking adult this morning or thinking young adult, thinking student this morning, your experience will tell you the target, the aim, cannot be that we can get along with everybody as best friends because that just doesn't exist. And so that's kind of what we know that that, and it can be okay that there's some tension or some space that exists within relationships. And so the question legitimately is, what does it actually look like? And here's the question that I want to want to ask to you this morning and try to answer a little bit. What is the expectation for the Christian when it comes to shalom with one another? What is the expectation for the Christian when it comes to shalom or fullness, wholeness, completeness with one another? What is it that we are expected to do? What should we be aiming for? What does it mean biblically to reach for shalom, peace, and fullness, not just with God, but actually with you and me, with you and me, and you and you. you know, what does it look like, and what should the expectation be for the Christian? This is a tough topic to try to handle. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'm just going to roll out to you um, about nine different passages this morning. And so we're going we're gonna to hit it kind of like a stone skipping across a pond with a couple of touch points across the scriptures this morning because I want to bring to you kind of the force or the weight of what the New Testament has to say in particular about this concept piece. And then I want to talk about it, tease out some of those ideas, and then I want to ask some very practical so what questions at the end that hopefully will help us determine how are we doing when it comes to shalom with one another, okay? So you're welcome to, uh, to turn in your Bible for these. There will come a time when I will ask you to turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, but um, right now I'm going to throw up these passages on the screen just for the sake of expediency this morning. Um, so first of all, as we think about what does the Bible have to say about this concept, let's begin here in the New Testament. I'm just going to walk through the New in particular. Um, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50, here's what we read, and Mark uh, was a disciple of Jesus who wrote this, and he was writing here, and he says, salt uh, is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Okay, so we enter the conversation in terms of what does the Bible have to say? What is the target that the New Testament in particular might paint for Christians? What is the target? We begin in Mark chapter 9 with this, this word peace. It's the Greek word irene, which is that translation essentially the corresponding word shalom in the Old Testament. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves. In other words, spur one another on, um, preserve the faith of one another, kind of make things lively okay, with one another, um, make it spicy, if you will, all right, give it some flavor. Have salt among yourselves, kind of keep going with the mission of Christ. And, it says, and be at peace with each other. And so there's this expectation from a disciple of Jesus that, that Christians will be at peace with each other. So it's a really broad entry into the conversation. Be at peace with each other. And then Paul writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 19, he says, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to shalom or irene or peace and a mutual edification. And so Paul continues the concept and he says, this, this is something you should know, that you need to make every effort. And he uses this word effort. Mark didn't use it, Paul does. Effort. In other words, we begin to see that peace has this effort associated with it. In other words, here's the, the deal, it doesn't come naturally. 
Because anything that comes naturally doesn't require a whole lot of effort. You're not really using effort to breathe right now. Now that I said that, you're thinking about it. But you're not using the effort to do something that comes natural. The effort that Paul is recommending is effort that requires you to do something that's not natural with you or with me. So make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. So there should be this view of seeing the people around me to build them up, not just to get what I need out of my life right now. Paul continues to write about it, and he writes more in 1 Corinthians, and he writes about peace in the context of marriage in particular, and really to a context uh, in marriage related to a divorce where a believing spouse, someone who believes in Jesus, and someone who does not believe in Jesus have a separation, have a split. And here he writes in 1 Corinthians 7, 15, but if the unbeliever leaves the marriage, the relationship, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And so here we get this idea that Paul is laying out to us that God actually has called us. There's this calling on the Christian to live in peace. That it should be a pursuit because it's actually the calling of God. And not just peace with him, but as this would indicate, that this is actually a peace with one another. God has called us to live at peace with each other. This is a calling to figure out what does it look like to live at peace with each other. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, Paul continues to write, and he says, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. And then he uses the language here, strive. Again, work hard for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of, and check this out, one mind, one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Again, more that we're seeing. So again, work for full restoration encourage each other, and then let your minds be thinking about at least something that you can agree on, that your minds can be considered to be of one mind. And that's a powerful concept, that there can be something big that our minds can get around that we can actually all agree on, be of one mind, and live in peace. And the God of love, and he's also, as Paul will say here, the God of peace, will be with you. And so this God that Christians serve is the God of love and is the God of peace peace. A very powerful section in Ephesians chapter 2, in fact one of the kingpins or linchpins of understanding peace in the New Testament comes when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 in verses 13 to 15. I'm just going to highlight those verses. Here's what we read. But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Notice what's happening here, that Jesus is pictured here as being the one that through his blood, he is, he is our peace. And the peace brought us, not just brought us to God, but actually in this context brought us to one another. That's significant. The context here is Jews and Gentiles who were warring, who were not getting along. And Paul is laying out here, it's not just that when Jesus died, he made things right so that you can relate to God. It's actually when Jesus died, he made things right so you can get along with each other and with God. And that's a game changer for the Christian. It's a game changer. 
It's not just about a relationship with God, while certainly that is what has brought peace to us, but it's also he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between two ethnic groups, essentially, who wouldn't get along, between two groups who saw the world very differently who wouldn't get along, and it's that relationship that he restored. And he continues to write in verse 15, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. That there was a one new humanity out of what had been two. Two different, again, human-to-human relationships are coming together into one, thus making peace. And the peace that he's talking about is not just peace with God, but peace relationally with each other, with one another. Paul continues to write in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. Therefore, he says, as God's chosen people... And here's where it gets kind of personal. If you call yourself a Christian and would say that I'm a follower of Christ, then we become God's chosen people, which means he has a claim on our life and not just our claim on our own life. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and, and then here's a key concept that is a new concept this morning, and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, and a reminder again, forgive as the Lord forgave you. The first time we see in the New Testament forgiveness being linked with peace, there's a learning principle there. He continues, and over all these issues, or all these, excuse me, virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. So let the peace of Christ rule. It's that image of whatever is king in the heart, whatever drives your life, if it's money, reputation, power, finances, finding a woman, finding a man, finding a home, finding a, what, making your reputation, whatever drives your decisions. Paul is saying here, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart so that your heart will be turned and steered and moved toward peace with one another. That the peace of Christ will rule that. That I, that I, I have to think what does forgiveness look like? What does graciousness look like? What does kindness look like? And as members of one body, again, he reminds us, you were called to peace and be thankful. The author to the Hebrews continues to write about this in Hebrews 12, 14. He writes, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and be holy. Again, a reminder of the effort and the work that it takes to do this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15, Paul will write here again, and he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Interesting comment there, and admonish. Is admonishing a welcome feeling for anyone to receive? See, he's saying there's going to be people who will admonish you, even within the body. And I'm telling you, when I'm admonished and when you're admonished, we do not enjoy that. We want to fight back and push against that. And so here's another angle, that even within the body of believers, there will be correction. There will be admonishment. And when that happens, this is where make every effort to maintain the unity body comes into play. And this is where Paul addresses this issue of admonishment. He says, hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other, even in the context of people telling you things that you don't want to hear about yourself. This is a challenge. I hate to be admonished, and I think you do too. In fact, we work hard not to be admonished. 
But when we are, even in those tough times, in those tough conversations, Paul is laying out here, live at peace with one another. And he continues to write. And this is what not to do. And he says, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. And it's easy to become disruptive when you're admonished, isn't it? Oh, that guy is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Oh, that lady, she, what right does she have to talk to me that way? She, does, she only knew what I had to deal with, you know. And so we can be disruptive when we're admonished. And, and I have the tendency as much as anybody does to do that. And yet Paul has given us this hard teaching, even in the middle of that, Encourage those, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. That's easy, right? I've been wronged. My first inclination is to wrong you if you wrong me, and at least that's my first thought. We may not always follow through on that because we try to be somewhat civilized, but that's my first instinct is you wronged me, therefore uh, my first instinct is to wrong you back. But he says, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Always strive to do what is good for everyone else. Good for each other and for everyone else. So do you get the gist of it all? Do Do you see the weight of the New Testament emphasis here? Do you see the weight? Do you see the push in just these eight passages constantly coming back to, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you call yourself someone who is a follower of Jesus, there is this call to peace. There is this, this uh, draw on your life to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, that the peace of Christ will actually help you in decision-making with one another, that that becomes your grid, not what do I want or how was I offended, but rather what do I, how does Christ want me to move here? You see the weight and the push and the emphasis all throughout, strive, work hard for unity and peace. This is what the New Testament brings to bear on us. There's one passage I'd like you to turn to. It's similar to ones that we've covered already, but I wanted to at least have a passage that you turned to, you touched, you saw, and that you actually read. And so we're going to read this one together this morning. In Romans chapter 12, uh, verse 18, uh, you know, if there's one passage that can be fairly easy to apply or at least maybe difficult to wrestle with because of the implications of it, um, Paul writes here to us. So in Romans 12, 18... Um, I'd actually like to read this with you and have you read along. I'm going to be reading from the NIV, and I know there's different versions of the NIV. There's the 1984 edition and I think the 2011 edition. If you're reading from a tablet or your, your phone or, or something like that, you probably have the 2011 edition, whether you know it or not. If you're reading from a, a paper uh, Bible um, and it's older than 2011, you probably have the 84 edition. I'm reading from the 1984 deal right now. So here's... Um, Here's what mine says, and then we're going to read this together. Mine says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so I'd like you to read that with me, uh, because it's as true for me as it is for you. And so let's read this together now, okay? If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. All right, that was good. One more time with a little more energy, life, and Christmas spirit. Here we go. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you... Live at peace with everyone. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Okay, uh, so we have to deal with that passage. As if you're a Christian, if you're someone who claims to be a follower of Christ, there all of a sudden are some requirements and expectations on you and on me. And one of those is, if it is possible, as much as it depends on me, as far as it depends on me, that we are to live at peace with everyone. And all of a sudden we have to ask, have I done everything in my power to resolve what stands between me and somebody else? Have I done 
all that I need to do and all that I should do, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, let it never be said that the space that exists between you and somebody else is there because of you, not because of them. Let it not be said of you that you could have done more to reduce that space and reduce that disagreement. And as much as it's possible, as, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And all of a sudden, the, the finger gets pointed from they offended, they don't understand, they are rude, they are short-sighted, they are whatever, they are whatever, to all of a sudden the finger gets pointed back right here to me. If it is possible, and as much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. There is this call to peace, a call to unity. Now, to be clear, this is not, the target of this is not, let's all be best friends together, okay? We're not going to be enemies. That's my goal. We don't want to be enemies with people. But we also know that there are um, greater uh, relationships that have less space and others that have more space, and that's okay. But what this is a call to is saying, okay, the view of peace that's laid out in the New Testament comes, first of all, is sourced in the gospel of Jesus, is sourced in the cross of Christ. So because Jesus died for me and died for you, that is the impetus or the reason or the rationale for why I will go that extra mile. Let me ask this rhetorical question. Was Jesus wronged? (laughs) Was he wronged? Was there injustice done to him? Was there misunderstanding against him? Was there a vendetta against him? Were there people who wanted to get after him for no good reason at all? And the answer to all those, I believe, and if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you'd, you'd say, yes, injustice was done. He was wronged. He was maligned. He was misrepresented. And yet, what did he do? So even though he was wronged, he did what was right. And he initiated, he drew, and he stepped into rather than waiting for other people to fix it. He didn't wait for someone else to come save the world. Even though he was wronged, he did what was right. And he initiated and took the step to step into a relationship with us. Not only that we can have a relationship with God, but that we can have a relationship with each other. That humanity, the two Jew-Gentile, can become one. Big deal. Big deal. Big change. And so this idea, this view of Christian peace is essentially saying this, that if we are, are under that, if we believe in that, that we have an obligation, we have a duty to let that peace of Christ rule in our heart, to guide us, to make every effort, to work hard, to strive for the patience, the forgiveness, the kindness, the full restoration of relationship with one another in as much as it depends on us, in as much as it depends on you. Now, let me, let me try to make this a little more practical. Let me try to make this even a little more practical. I have, I have some questions, and then I want to finish with a principle. Okay? I have some questions. As we think about how do we draw this down, because it still is kind of broad, how do we draw this down? Some questions to ask. Um, the first question is this. When you think about uh, your relationships now that you have, um, the first question asks is this. When there is space between my relationships, what do I fill the gap with? When there's space between my relationships, what do I fill the gap with? Meaning, when, when all of a sudden you're offended, when you, you feel like you've been wronged, and you thought you knew someone and now you're not so sure, 
or your ex has done something and they, they create a feeling within you that like, eh, yeah. The question becomes, what do I fill the gap with between my per- me and the other person? Is it, and, and here are the big two, big two things that we fill the gap with. Usually either with trust or suspicion. With trust or suspicion. And, and the gap continues to be widened when we fill that space with suspicion. When we begin to say, ah, oh, now I get it. Now I know why he's that way and why she's that way. Ah. Oh. And then we start reading into why something went down the way it went down. We begin to judge motivations. And whenever we fill the gap in relationships with suspicion, we just continue to, kind of like a a jack will jack up a car, we just continue to jack the space between the relationship further and further and further and further away. And the person may not even know it, but that's exactly what we're doing because all of a sudden we suspect that there's more there than really is, and we begin not to trust as much. And so the question becomes, what do I fill the gap with? What's my intuitive response? What do I fill the gap with when there's a disagreement, when there's a conflict, when there's anger? What do I fill the gap with? Trust or suspicion? Do I believe the best or do I believe the worst about people? Okay. Second question is this. Um, can I let love cover this disagreement? Paul will write in the New Testament that love covers a multitude of sins. So the question becomes, can I let love cover this? Now, let me clarify what love is not. Love covers, this is not, this is not when love covers multitude of sins. Let's say you're, you're a, you, you have a disagreement with someone in the church or whatever, and you, don't, uh, you, you say hi to them in the foyer, and you're, you're nice to them here, but in the car with your kids or with your wife, your husband, and you just, oh, I can't believe it, I can't believe I did Okay. And you're like, okay, well, love doesn't really cover that issue, right? I mean, just because we're friendly to one another... In a, in a public setting doesn't mean that love has covered the sin. Here's when you'll know that love covers the sin. That when you think about this person that you are upset with, when you think about the name or the face of your boss, your employee, your coworker, your family member, your friend or your former friend, when you think about them, what do you feel? If you continue to feel anxiety... If you continue to feel anger, if you feel frustrated, disappointed, suspicious, then love is not able to cover that. And I don't think that's a fault or failing of yours. What that means is, therefore, that I need to now go have a conversation. It doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean that you haven't mustered up enough love. It just means that this issue has created too much space where love can't just kind of cover that. Because when I think about you and when you think about me, if there is not a sense of I believe the best and I trust, then we are creating suspicious gaps between us which will not lead to unity. It will just lead to disunity and struggle. And so if I'm filling the gaps with suspicion, I'm not allowing love to cover it and I need to then have the conversation. It doesn't mean you failed or I failed. It just means that's, it's just too big and we need to talk. We need to have a hard conversation which can turn to restoration. That's make every effort to keep the unity of the body in as much as it depends on you. That's the effort that it takes. So can love cover this? Sometimes the answer is yes, and it can be gone. And sometimes you can forgive somebody in your mind and your heart, and you can think about them and, in a great way, even though they offended you and, and you're good to go. Good. That really is fine. No need to have a conversation. But in the private thoughts, if that person comes to mind and you just can't kind of get rid of that feeling you have, that angst, we've got to talk. In, in a loving, friendly way and, and, and figure that out, right? 
All right, number three. How much does it cost to me not to resolve this? Have you thought about that? When you're in disagreement with people, when you're not getting along, when things are not working right, have you thought about how much it's costing you not to resolve it? And how much anxiety, how much worry, how much time, how much energy, how much lack of sleep you're getting, how much um, you're trying to avoid certain places or conversations. You see them in the grocery store and just continue going down the aisle quickly so I don't make contact with them. And you try to rearrange your life or your conversations so you don't have to run into them because you don't want to deal with it. Have you thought about how much it's costing, you know, not to resolve that? And is it actually worth it to continue that pace and that work that it's, it's causing in your life? How much is it willing to cost you? How much are you willing to pay for that? A corollary question to that is this, is how long am I willing to live with this tension? How long am I willing to go with this tension? Like, are you okay to say, okay, for the next month, I'm okay to be angry with somebody? You know, in the new year, we're going to make New Year's resolutions, I'll be fine in January. You know, hey, for five years, I'm, you know, I got a five-year deal on this thing, I'm fine with that. Or, or is it a lifetime deal when you say, you know what, I, I'm, good, I'm good to be upset with somebody for a lifetime. Like, they wronged me, they wronged me. They were insensitive. They were, they just, I can't believe they did that again. No, I'm not, I'm not talking. I'm not having the conversation. I'm not willing to step into that, no. And I'm good with that for a lifetime, whatever. Now, how long are you good with that for? How long, how long do you want to go to carry that weight and that burden? It'd be a good question to answer. How long do I want to go to carry this burden, this weight? Last question is this. Is there something bigger I should be keeping in mind. There's something bigger I should be keeping in mind. Go back in your mind with me to the opening list of things that I said, um, the things we think we know about uh, conflict and disagreement. And that is one of the things I said is that big events tend to shrink the space between us. So a, a death in the family will all of a sudden bring family together that was far apart because it's a bigger event and we're all together grieving the loss of our, of our family member. And the little disagreements kind of get set aside. And so as you think about, is there something bigger that I should be keeping my mind on yeah, you can begin to think really simply, like, on my deathbed, do I want my legacy to be the one? Yeah, I was the one who wasn't willing to go talk. I was the one who was willing to hold this grudge forever. I was the one who was willing to do that. Is, is that what we want? You can even think bigger than that. That is, what does my faith require of me? What does my faith require of me? What does my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ require of me? And what does the New Testament tell me? to do. That's something bigger, all of a sudden. That's something big, very big. Is there something bigger that I have to keep in mind? And that, to me, I think is exactly what Jesus kept in mind. When he was in the middle of being wronged, spit on, and mocked, tortured, and he acknowledged, Lord, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. In that moment, what do you, he wanted to give up, absolutely. I mean, he wanted to step away, but then he said, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, I'm going to make every effort, and it is going to be hard work to maintain the unity. I'm, and Jesus made every effort, even though he was wrong, to step into doing what was right and to initiate. That's what he did. And so the question becomes, what does my faith require of me? Not, do, not what do I want to do, what would be nice to do, or what do people think I should do, but the question is, what does my faith require of me? What does my faith require me? What is, what is the bigger thing to do? Now, if you didn't get anything from all of that, I'm sorry for the waste of time that was. <laughs> I think we've learned some things this morning. I hope we have. But I want to bring it down to a simple statement that I hope um, will stay with you longer. 
Okay, and, and so if you've kind of tuned down and are thinking about lunch, right, or are thinking about the whoopie pie that I mentioned earlier, or we're thinking about, you know, what, what's next in your day, just come back for a minute uh, with me because we're about to wrap it up, but just come back for a minute to this principle. And I want to lay out a principle that I hope um, that you will be able to take and live with and chew on and deal with, and I hope you will also begin to imagine what could life be like if this principle were lived out in every area in which I live. And this principle is for the Christian. So if you are here this morning and you are exploring faith, exploring Christianity, this is what we call Christians too. So if you're not a Christian, you don't even need to be called to this or led to this. Right? This, is, this is what Christians should be after because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the, the principle, right? Whether I like it or not, I can't like not liking you. Like it? Let me say it again. Whether I like it or not, I can't like not liking you. In other words, I don't have a choice to be cool with the feeling of, yeah, we don't get along. Just do we, we don't get along. I can't like that. I can't like that. I can't get to the place in my life where I like the fact that I'm not getting along with you. That's just not Christian. That's just not the gospel. It is hard, but it's just not the gospel. Make every effort. I, I cannot get to the point where I'm okay with not liking you. In fact, I kind of like not liking you. And the reason I like not liking you is because you did something to wrong me. And I kind of like the fact that I was right and you were wrong. And I just can't wait till you come to me to apologize because I'm going to like being right because I am right and you are wrong. And so I kind of like that. In fact, I'll kind of build up arguments in my head as to why I'm right and why you're wrong. And I kind of like not liking you. In fact, it's part of my identity. I don't like you. That's my identity. You know, I'm a Hatfield and you're a McCoy. I like not liking you. And that's just not Christian. And whether I like it or not, I cannot get to the point in my heart or mind ever where I'm satisfied with not liking you. It's hard work to get there. But it is exactly what is required of gospel people who say this is exactly what our Savior did. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the peace of Christ guide in your interpersonal relationships. Let the peace of Christ move you and push you to say, this is hard, yeah, but I cannot ever be satisfied with liking the fact that I don't like somebody else. Imagine what that would be like in your school. Imagine what it would be like for the, for the kids who aren't quite cool enough to hang out with you, who kind of sit by themselves at the lunch table or who don't have the clothes that you have to wear. Imagine what it would be like if in your school, you were one of the champions of this cause, you were the one who said, you know what? No one else really seems to like them. And I can't like the fact that no one is liking them. I need to move and step into that direction. I need to be the one to bring peace here. Can you imagine what that would be like in your family? Let's not imagine that too long. Can you imagine what that would be like in your family? To say, you know, we can't be satisfied with not liking each other. Does this require work? Absolutely. Does this require wisdom? Absolutely. 
Can you imagine what that would be like in your employment, your business with your coworker, with your boss? Say, man, I've never liked my boss. I, I freely speak of how dumb he is or she is and how short-sighted they are. If only they knew. And, but what if you were not satisfied with liking, not liking somebody else? What if you were not satisfied with that? And what if that dissatisfaction pushed you? Said, you know what? As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, someone who, by the blood of Jesus, not only has been brought to God, but been brought to one another, that I, I'm not going to be content liking, not liking other people. I can't be content with that. It's just not what I've been called to. It requires great courage, and it requires great work, and it requires you to take the initiative. It requires you to be the first one to move. It requires you not to say, I will when they will. It requires you to be the one, just like Jesus. Even though he was wronged, he initiated. He stepped in, and he did it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So that the space that's created between you and me, and which we know there will be some space, but we know that we're able to live with some space between us. Because love can cover a multitude of the sins that happen within that, and we can be okay. We don't need to have conversations every week, every day, about the things that we disagree on, because love covers a lot of that stuff. There are times when love can't because it's too great. It doesn't mean you failed or I failed. But those are the times we need to talk to maintain the unity of the body, to keep the bigger things in mind. Because big things lessen the space. We need to keep in our one-mindedness on the gospel of Jesus Christ that has come to bring us together and to bring us to God. My hope for you this Christmas season, and right now too, is that you will allow this principle to kind of bounce around in your brain and filter through your heart and mind this week. Whether I like it or not, I can't like not liking you. It's our call to peace as people of God, people who worship a Savior who has done this for us. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your example of reach and peace to us. And if we're honest, we're challenged by the implications of living out the gospel with one another. It's easier to live out the gospel with you alone and talk just about our relationship with you as our God and our Father. It is different when we talk about the implications of it with one another and all the sin and the failure and the junk that we bring to one another, all the ways that we're going to rub each other the wrong way. But I pray, Father, for us that we would be men and women who are not ever going to be content, not ever going to like not liking other people. We're not going to be those kind of people who get a kick out of and a joy out of being in disagreement. But that when that happens, it cuts across the grain of our life so clearly that we say we've got to resolve this in love because we love each other. And we want to get along for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we know that there is hope in the cross. We know that you've given everything to save this world that you love. And as this final song will indicate to us here, that you have brought us that hope through the cross, and you gave us everything to save the world you love. And as we sing, Father, may we be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made 
and its implications on how we are to relate to one another in love and in peace. Give us wisdom, I pray. Give us great wisdom and courage to know what to do with what we've just heard. We pray this in Jesus' name.